Hello humans, welcome to Disney's Hard Labor. This is episode 35 of your Power Report, and I'm Dan from the Internet. I said in the previous episode of Power Report um, that I wanted to emulate what I believe leftist media should be doing more of, which is talking to workers and people who are close to striking movements and elevating their voices. And that motivated me to spend the next episode of planning the next episode of Power Report and looking for some of these voices. And so today I have a really great episode for you in that regard. Joining me on this episode, I have Helen Silverstein. I am a member of DSA LA's Hollywood Labor Committee's leadership. Um, I am also through DSA LA Hollywood Labor in charge of the Red List, a socialist scripts competition. Um, I am also a worker in Hollywood. You can find Helen on Twitter at IceColdHelenAid. And with her work on the Leadership Committee for Hollywood Labor, um, DSA LA's like Labor Committee, um, I-, I was sort of not expecting to have this happen in the interview, but I was seeing so many parallels with politics as it exists on a broader level, um, the power dynamics between um, the rich and powerful, the politicians who we elect to even the playing field and how they're oftentimes playing this mediating role and in reality don't want to do what they were elected to do and supporting their constituents. Um, The end result of pain at the labor level with the material conditions getting worse and worse for workers. Meanwhile, productivity is ever increasing. You'll sort of start to realize as we go through this interview that I am continually taken aback by how many parallels there are between the labor movement and politics more broadly. And so I try to tease that out a little bit in the interview. There's also aspects of really getting at how labor really works. I think there not a lot of labor education has been done in America. And so I think um, Helen and myself laid down some really good facts here for you. So stay around the interview for that. But really importantly, the dynamics of what it actually takes and what you're up against when you are attempting a strike of some kind or attempting a labor movement, because on the internet, a lot has been talked about or it's been taken for granted how difficult it actually is to build these movements over long periods of time to the detriment of people really understanding how to build not just labor movements, but movements overall to build political power. The knowledge to understand how these fights were won in the past and how fights were lost in the past is crucial to learn right now at this juncture when we need to best calibrate and understand how we can push the Democratic Party left to avert essential disaster. And by not learning these lessons and by going into seductive, easy outs and, um, you know, uh, unorganized labor strikes and things like that can be really detrimental to building left power and working against a lot of built-in cynicism that workers have on a different level because ultimately we're talking and we're having political conversations and i enjoy the fact that you're listening to this political podcast but not everyone is a political junkie and we need to expand the universe we need to open the conversation to people outside of politics and learn to speak the language that people outside of politics speak in order to do that and we need to come at them 
with a language and analysis that allows them to understand their material conditions and why there's a place for them on the left and basically nowhere else in um, the current political system today. So I think that's a, the top level what you get from the conversation, but um, there's a lot of details in there. I really appreciate Helen for taking the time out and doing this. I'm going to do the plugs at the top of the show. So like I said, you can follow Helen at Ice Cold Helenade on Twitter, and you can follow um, myself on Twitter, Dan from the web, but you probably already know that. There are going to be a lot more ways you can interact with the show soon and kind of bring the show together. I hope to announce those very, very soon. Um, so stay tuned for that. Make sure you're subscribed anywhere you are listening to this podcast, whether it's on YouTube at youtube.com slash Dan from the internet. Hit the subscribe button really appreciate it and um if you're listening to the podcast version which is really convenient we're pretty much wherever you get podcast and major podcast apps uh give us a good rating five stars thumbs up whatever exists in that app it helps people find the podcast and um i really appreciate it and the future really appreciates it Thank you, Helen, so much for joining me on the show today. Um, I'm really excited to talk to someone who is really closely working um, with labor in a moment where labor is having a moment itself. And so uh, having a moment. Yeah. And I'm really happy to see it. And there, there's a lot to go into because especially on the Internet right now, um, there isn't it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, there's a lot of attention towards labor movements, and that's really great um, because labor movements in general and movements for workers' rights tend to be slow. Their process is to happen over years at a time. Meanwhile, um, this moment, like, there's a lot of social media attention. There's a lot, of, a little more news attention than you'd usually get. And that's good. But on the other hand, a lot of people are sort of jumping to conclusions like saying, OK, anyone else who hasn't directly like organized in their workplace already and hasn't spent years doing this can just find a day on October picked out by some shady group on TikTok and then uh, just not work that day and build a worker strike that way. And that's also not good. And so like, I think it's important. And what we'll definitely be doing in this conversation is like contextualizing what real labor organizing looks like. But I want to start by asking you directly, like with your work in um, DSALA, what does that look like when DSA is like building bridges with labor and building those relationships? Um, and what does that look like when you get to a moment like this, where IATSE is nearing a deal, the um, Air National Association of Theater, um, or Theater and Stage. Do I have it right? Got it. One more. I'm not going to get the last one. Okay. Electricians, engineers? I don't know. I um, don't actually know. Isn't that bad? <laughs> yeah. I always just call it IATSE because that's I, a good I've thing. I've always called it IATSE. Yeah. Um, employees. But I, I think stage engineers just sounds more badass. So I might just stay with that forever. But could you explain like what that work looks like in building bridges between a political organization and a labor movement? Yeah. So a big thing that I've noticed... Um, Labor is having a moment right now. Like union approval ratings are the highest they've been in decades. Everyone, major, major strikes are happening all over the country. Major unionization efforts are happening all over the country. Um, and something I've noticed is that people don't inherently think of labor, labor issues as political. Um, and like, that's something that's weird because everything has been made political in our world, like things that shouldn't be political, like wearing a mask or vaccines have been like, oh man, this is a right versus left issue. But um, a lot of older politics go back to labor issues and a lot of what brings people over to the left goes back to labor issues. Um, 
something else I've noticed is that people don't like to think of themselves as workers and of themselves as people who are suffering under capitalism. Um, I have a lot of friends who are in unions that have been on the brink of strikes or big movements right now who say, oh, well, so many other workers have it so much worse. Um, and I say, we have these events in Hollywood labor called Champagne Socialism, where we get together and we commiserate um, over drinks. It's it's a it's a little play on the Hollywood drinks um, thing. We have a lot of a lot of the way business gets done in Hollywood is over drinks, and so instead we have drinks where people talk about the real situations happening in their workplace. Um, and what happens every single meeting is someone will say oh, wow, I don't want to share this because it's not going to sound as bad as what all of you have been through. And then they will share the most horrifying story you have ever heard. No one wants to think of themselves as directly suffering under capitalism, as directly needing a union, as directly needing people to advocate for them. It's, it's easier to recognize it in others than themselves, I think. So, so if I'm understanding you correctly, a lot of what DSA is doing is kind of putting terminology and putting like words and a sense of like understanding to what people are going through in their workplace, like to be able to, yeah, like to yeah. be able to share those stories and like feel comfortable identifying the material conditions in which they're going through and why that doesn't have to do with, oh, this workplace is just particularly bad or like, oh, I mean, like, probably like that is one factor but also it's larger than one workplace it's what a lot of other people are going through it's a systemic thing so to speak a hundred that's exactly what i was going to say it's systemic it's not something i say often is that like you can't change the system the system changes you um in regards to people who try and get involved with electoral politics but like this is so deeply ingrained in our system, in our society, this, the idea of hustle, hustle culture, that like people, the gr rise and grind, get that bread. It's people like have been conditioned to, to think that their entire life should be revolving around their work and their labor. And not that their labor is just something that they do in addition to the rest of a fulfilling life. Um, I mean, and, that goes back to this IOTSI stuff. There are a lot of people who are really content with working 18 hour days and who say, well, this is what, this is the price of being in the industry that I love, but it shouldn't have to be that way. Yeah, I, I think like, especially even over lockdowns, we saw the entire economy shift and adjust to meet the conditions um, that society was facing. Like people there are restrictions on where people could go because we didn't have a vaccine that now people don't want to take for dumb reasons um against a virus that was rapidly spreading and killing a lot of people and so um in hollywood especially there were for a while things weren't being shot but the show must go on is is the cliche and so um there were restrictions put in place there were distancing measures you couldn't shoot in as many places but you people wrote around it um they shot around it and as a result of this like 
and I've, I've seen this as firsthand, like some of these people, like they are incredible at adapting to the situation and getting the job done, but that involves work. That involves additional work than what is normally done to reinvent the wheel and do all these processes. And that's hours, that's time. And when these, um, and when the entertainment industry is working on like razor thin budgets to begin with and like razor thin um, time constraints to begin with, it's just that much harder to do the job. And then there's no respect that kind of comes after that. Like, hey, thank you for doing this job under insane conditions. You get nothing. And like that brings up something else I'd like to mention in regards to the proposed um, agreement for IOTSI. Everyone keeps on talking about inflation and how like, okay, this 3% increase, it doesn't match with inflation. Or there are people who are very in support of the contract who say we don't want to tie it to inflation in case inflation goes down. But it shouldn't be all about inflation. Productivity has grown exponentially over the last years, and it shows no sign of slowing. It, As more time goes on, Film is a complicated industry, but people get better and better at these things. There are people entering the film industry for the first time ever who are already better at their jobs, better prepared, better trained, better at dealing with complex issues than veterans leaving the industry. I mean, they deserve to be compensated appropriately because profits for those at the top have also grown exponentially. And it's COVID really showed us like, Film workers are amazing. We can adapt to anything. The show I'm on, its last season was entirely remote. None of the actors ever met each other. Everyone was working from their webcams, and it was still a great series of television. I, people have been adapt. We've had to adapt this season to having fewer actors in the room with each other. Um, just people in this industry are brilliant, and they have done so much and every year everyone gets better at handling these complex issues better at creating better content for everyone it's not just like graphics and um effects that look better 10 years like 10 than 10 years ago it's storytelling itself has gotten more complex more precise people are doing things with the written word that they have never done before and people deserve to be compensated appropriately for that because it's not just like the showrunners and the bosses at the top who are making all of these changes. It is, I have friends who are writer's assistants who have pitched jokes that have gone on to become internet memes and like changed the world in a little way and they're getting paid, you know, nothing. That's just ridiculous. Um... Like it's a travesty, really. Like how how we are even. Well, yeah, it's a, a systemic, and it goes not just in Hollywood too, because like, I think this can, conversation can seem sort of insular of like, oh, people on screen talking about content, sure, but like, I think this is something that is felt in a number of different places, like not just on. Um, not not just in the entertainment industry, but in the hospitality industry, it's been felt a lot during COVID-19. Um, people heard a lot about like delivery workers and people working in grocery stores and on the front lines in that sense to say nothing of doctors and things like that. But of course, all these are different situations and class levels, but a lot of these, especially like grocery workers, delivery workers are kind of keeping society going on that level. The entertainment industry is kind of keeping society 
not necessarily like sane. I'm not saying like, oh, thanks to the entertainment industry, we're making everyone like lives better or anything like that. But um, in a way, yes, because it's like reprieve from everything that's going on. It's like um, just like entertainment that's there. It's making money for a reason. To your point, like it's making more money than ever before. So it should be way past time for these companies to sort of give their due. And I mean, like that is a that is a like bias we all have towards the entertainment industry. And I am so guilty of it. Like my showrunner had to sit me down the other day. I was like, I don't have a real job. And my showrunner was like, sat me down and was like, you need to stop saying that you have a real job. You put in the labor, you make a product, people enjoy it. Also, even if you made a product that people didn't enjoy, you are putting in the labor, like you are giving a part of yourself to this. Like, don't discount your efforts, which is just like, first of all, my showrunners are amazing. Um, but <laughs> also like there's this tendency to be like, oh, well, other people have it worse. So I don't really have it that bad. But like the fact is, even though film is like this magical industry, people are literally dying for their art here. People, this is, people are, you know, getting sick from COVID going into work. People are putting off having children, getting, getting like weird medical disabilities because they've been working on set for so long. This is work that is breaking our bodies and breaking our minds. It's still labor. Yeah. Like, and when we're talking like theater and stage technicians, like you're talking people who are holding up lights for hours and hours a day or microphones or all the invisible things, the theater magic, like it's not magic, it's labor. And I think that's equivalent to um, like workers in John Deere, for example, who are striking. I was talking about um, doctors and people who are um, like in the medical field who are at different levels of the class structure. And people always say, oh, doctors, they make six figure salaries. But it's like that's that there's more at hospitals than doctors. There's nurses, there's lab technicians, there's a whole bunch of people. Um, and the strikes that are happening or the proposed strikes that are happening at Kaiser Permanente um, <laughs> is an example of that. Um, as <laughs> I think I'm at different points i've talked to you helen about kaiser permanente and my annoyance with them as a company especially on the mental health side of things and where they fall short and what i've actually kind of found is sort of tragic is that the people i'm on the other side of the line with who are like working through the administrative stuff they're exhausted as well because like it, they're they're working within a system that is not set up to meet the needs of the workers that are working there and as a result the workers are not able to provide the best service to the people at the end um who are like need help and whatever needs you saying and of course like the danger situation when it comes to the entertainment industry and these conditions brings to mind the tragic situation that happened on the set where um alec baldwin <laughs> ended up shooting the um weapon that ended up being loaded and killing the camera woman yeah and like that is a tragic, tragic situation. But I, what I really hate about this situation is that the media is all trying to like blame all these like lower level support staff and or even like even like leftists I know are like, oh, well, this is the production, this production team's fault. And it's not this one production like this one production had a lot of issues, but that is it is emblematic of the industry as a whole, the industry's need to cut corners at every turn, the absolute 
lack of regard for safety of workers on sets. I mean, this is just one incident, but everyone I know who works in film is like the amount of things that had to go wrong for that, for two people, one person to get killed, another to get injured by a gun on a set. Like that's so many rules had to be broken, but everyone knows it's not rules that were broken. It's rules that were willfully ignored so that they could cut corners. Everyone knows that this, there were problems on set before this happened on this production. People walked off and no one cared because it's just so common at this point. It, people getting tired and fed up and unable to work under ridiculous conditions. If it hadn't been this set, it could have been countless other sets I've worked on where conditions were horrible. Um, and like a lot of this goes back to the union. There's a lot of non-unionized labor in film that should be unionized. Um, a big effort within Hollywood labor right now is to try and hear how PAs are doing, how low, low, low level support staff and rooms are doing because this is where a lot of the problems come from. Um, people who aren't trained, who don't know what they're doing and who are told, okay, well, we'll give you like, whatever, we can give this person making minimum wage, they can handle the guns on set and they can handle expensive, heavy industrial equipment. Because why would we pay someone union rates for it? Yeah, it's, and, and yeah, I, the cost cutting is so emblematic in so many industries and so many contexts that I feel like, unfortunately, it's a case study. It's an example of what is going on in labor more broadly. And I think there's like larger trends because in a political sense, there was a lot of talk about, um, oh, there are people who have been enjoying government benefits for too long. Um, like there's a whole narrative that... Um, like, oh, all the COVID benefits that were given by Trump and then Joe Biden and Republicans and Democrats, just Washington in general, had gone on too far. And now we need to get people back to work. It was like a Republican talking point that eventually, of course, got spoon fed to centrist Democrats like Joe Biden. And then they yeah. ran with this and it became this like ultimate sort of measure that, OK, we're going to pull back on um, people's benefits and that's going to make it so we have record amounts of uh, empty job fillings. They're like, places where we can hire people and people are not coming back to work. So now that we don't have these benefits going out to people, people will come back to work. And then something shocking happened, which is people weren't coming back to work. So like, and economically, this is confusing economists. And I'm like, I'm, I, I studied economics for a couple years in college. I don't consider myself to be like an economist, but they sure. teach you, they teach you a whole, I mean, basically, right. I mean, there are people who do less and call themselves like, more on the internet on the left so whatever but like they teach you the whole gamut of things that can happen in an economic system and one thing that can happen is uh you have a situation where you have a lot of employers who want to hire a lot of workers and that ends up being a good thing because workers have power in that situation it's one of the rare times where workers can exercise power because rather than um because they're so many jobs to choose from and workers have that ability to choose from jobs they can demand more they can demand okay this has to be a higher wage this has to offer me um more time off for bereavement or uh, maternity care paternity care or any kind of like thing like that and 
some jobs are having to step up to that. However, a lot of places are holding firm and not doing that. And they're still caught in this like old school mindset of, you know, kind of like, again, what you were saying earlier, you should be happy and proud of doing this. This is hard work, but you know, this is just the way it is. And so do you, how hard has it been to break some of that kind of like old dogmatic thinking, at least on your end, that like, oh, you should be proud of the almost literally backbreaking labor. And in fact, you should actually say, no, I do do backbreaking labor. I should do a little bit less of it because there's so much more production or so much more money being made out of it as a result now. I mean, a lot of this, people think that labor issues are really leftist versus conservative. But what I've noticed are the bigger issues are leftist versus neoliberal. And something going on in IOTC right now is kind of a microcosm for what's happening all over the country um, in that a lot of IOTC leadership really supports um, the new proposed agreement and are saying, look at what we've gotten. Isn't this enough? Why aren't you happy with this? This should be enough. But they're not willing to work outside of the system. They're only looking at it within the system. They're saying, well, this is the way it's always been. These are the most gains we've ever made. And I don't want to discount the gains that they have made in this agreement. They are great. And people who are not paid for their labor did a lot of work organizing to get those gains. But at the same time, like it's this resistance to break out of the mold that they have set for us, that you deserve more than you're getting. And they deserve more than they're getting and they refuse to believe that. And it's kind of like, it kind of seems like a smaller scale version of what's happening right now with the Biden administration. Um, everyone's saying, well, Joe Biden is the most leftist president ever. I literally heard that, like that he's the most progressive president ever because of what he's done. But this is not, people deserve more than this. It's getting rid of paid family leave. It's getting rid of health care for all, getting rid of all these big lofty promises and saying, well, this is still farther than it's ever been. No, we deserve more. Um, and like IOTC workers, a lot of the workers at the bottom, there's this disappointment with their leadership. There's this disconnect between IOTC leadership and IOTC rank and file where when I talk to certain union members, they think, oh, because I'm in certain locals, like our concerns are not taken as seriously as bigger locals or, oh, because I haven't had the time to go to union meetings and town halls. I, my concerns have been discounted and I don't know, it's, it seems like an intentional effort to bring, to drive people apart so that they can't realize that we all are on the same side. It is not IOTC leadership versus IOTC rank and file. It is all of IOTC, all of Hollywood laborers versus all the people at the top. It is, you know, the issue is not actors getting paid ridiculous amounts. The issue is people getting paid ridiculously low amounts. It is, it just, it breaks my mind. I really hate it. I wish everyone would understand that we are all fighting the same fight here and you all deserve more. Like people are saying like, oh, well, you know, this new contract, it gives us, you know, 10 hour turnarounds. And it's like, if you have a 10 hour turnaround, if you're working 8 a.m. to, 
I don't know, let's say like 1am because that happens. And even if you have a 10 hour turnaround, production companies are going to squeeze as much as they can out of you. Most people can't afford to live in the city. They have one hour commutes. So if you're spending 10 hours working, one hour driving one way, one hour driving the other way, that leaves you 12 hours left of your life. And like your life, so you have eight hours of sleep, four hours of whatever you want. Your life should be more than four hours of your own time. You and deserve it, It's not four hours of your own time. Cause it's like not, people like, have- My numbers were completely off, but- I mean, I, I, not, not even like, let's take your numbers as like true, which like they are like, and and, and, and I, I, I like the example. It's not to attack the example here because like, um, but I, I, it was to acknowledge that there's sometimes there's like 16 hour working times and like turnarounds much less, but let's take that four hours, right? And a normal person's like four hours of free time, like a normal person's weekend, it's filled with chores. It's filled with like doing bills and other kinds of like machinations of capitalism that keep you away from actual free time, from actual like enriching yourself, like personally, just like enjoying life as a limited experience as people get to live it based on just like a broad general sense, not to get overly religious about it. But like there's so much that is robbed of it systemically that I think it's interesting right now that people, um, are kind of at least if the statistics are to be seen and like the anecdotes are to be taken seriously uh people are seeming to be turning around to that and i think like you have a really unique position within dsa like hollywood labor to be and then the leadership of that to like really be able to see that happening from one like really important perspective and kind of see the nuances of that so kind of from that like what are some like legal hurdles and like issues that people sometimes face when they're trying to unionize because that's a whole sort of like dynamic that the media isn't talking about as well it's like okay there'll be some unionization efforts and sometimes it'll even be seen as oh we're actually really sort of enjoying this uh, or like we really want the best for our workers and so we encourage their efforts on bargaining and we look forward to it meanwhile behind the scenes they're lawyering up and like hiring these um teams to um basically sabotage any union effort they can I mean, sabotage the unionization effort in any way they can so like what are some of these hurdles that you've seen to some extent that you can speak to i mean one big thing i don't know if you've heard of the taft hartley act very vaguely but okay, so the taft hartley act um came about in 1947 and it was originally meant to like squash communist sentiment um, and it's an act that was super controversial, even for the time, like it got vetoed by, I think, Truman, and then the veto got overridden. Um, it, and it's come up a lot in this IOTC stuff, and it's come up a lot in other unionization efforts that, um, DSALA has tried to help with this past few years. Um, and like, it's, it's so bad. It, we're literally being union efforts of today, 2021 are literally being held hostage by an over 60 year old, like, what is it? How long ago was 1947? 70 years ish now we're being held hostage by a bill meant to squash communist sentiment. Um, it, it's so, um, you're not allowed to like strike in solidarity with it. 
which is like, okay, so you're not, so people on sets who are not in the unions are not allowed to strike. PAs are not allowed to strike, um, even though PAs are treated some of the worst conditions in this industry. I'm on a non-union show. No one on my show would have been allowed to strike. Um, let's see, what are the other, I could go off and off on this act. It's, you it's asked, gone. sorry, um, I mean, Dan, you're way more educated on like everything than I am. Um, but it's, you have to give, you know, you have to give notice for a strike. You have to like ask for a strike under this act. Um, and like, if you don't meet all of these requirements, like they, they will find ways to slow down the efforts and all these different things. They'll um, find ways, like this is a big thing with Amazon when they were having their strike, they'll find whoever's leading it and try to intimidate or harass them um, and try to get them to stop leading it or um, participating in that effort in general. Um, and the, I, I almost, I, I get at the same loss for words too, because it's like the, the system itself is already doing so much to bring people down on a labor basis. Right. And then you, you get like, okay, every, every angle of the way there's this angle, there's like the legal angle, there's what the work, like what, um, the bosses are doing, playing like a good cop, bad cop at the same time. And so you can sort of understand why after a while, even getting, um places to the point of like card check or getting um companies or organizations to the point of uh uh getting enough solidarity to get to the collective bargaining process to even get to that step um a lot of people like rank and file workers get extremely cynical about it almost like rightfully so because it it, it is such an uphill battle but i mean the gains are the weekend like <laughs> Uh, I, I'm laughing because I'm thinking of that one meme where um, the bloke from um, what my brain is just conked out. Um, but James Bond is saying, ladies and gentlemen, the weekend all over again. I'll be able to edit it and it will be fine. But um, like the, the actual like two day weekend was a fought for by like labor. Mm -hmm. it, was, it, was, it was like an organizing measure. I've always joked that like if I ran for president of the single issue, like uh, campaign on the three-day work week i would sweep because i'm oh, sorry on a four-day work week three-day work week would be even awesome but like the three-day weekend and the four-day work week i would sweep because that is just something that people feel will understand so like deeply and any person who works for a living will understand so deeply right that um we're working harder than ever we can actually do better work if we're not just constantly working on this exhausted basis so let's shift things around so that we can fit this new work schedule and guess what the the sun will keep rising and setting and the days will keep happening and the work will still keep getting done and so i think I, it's important to sort of see that yeah these moments of striking are super rare and they um sometimes like even in their best cases often achieve like kind of marginal wins like here and there but they are really crucial and they are really important because in the end it's these battles or nothing and the, and it's not even nothing it's like it keeps getting worse year by year because they keep stretching and trying to get more and more out of employees yeah 100 percent and Something that has come up a lot in this IOTSI um, contract negotiations, um, like the official IOTSI 
like message right now is to vote yes to ratify the new contract and to avoid a strike. Um, and something that they say is, oh, well, if we don't get a strong enough no vote, if we have only, if it's a small majority, we might lose some of the gains we've made. And people don't take into account that if they get like an overwhelming yes vote to ratify this new contract in three years, when they go back to the table, people are, the people at the top are going to say like, oh, well, this con this was enough for you three years ago. Ninety eight percent of your members, or whatever, it will be agreed to ratify this new contract. So why do you want more? This is the time they have had support like none others, and I know it is wild to watch to watch on social media how official IOTC I official IOTC messaging is just like vote yes on the strike, and then all the comments will be like. Vote yes, on, not on the strike, but yes, on the new contract. All of the comments will be like, absolutely not. I don't want to do this. And this is nothing. This is not what we were promised. It's not like bloodthirsty socialists lusting over a class war. It's individual workers who don't want to be treated like this anymore, who thought that people at the top who were supporting the strike were really supporting them. It's this disconnect between, I'm someone who's very biased um, because I work as a writer. I was a writer's assistant um, up until like two weeks ago. And if you're a writer's assistant and you're working 20 hour days or whatever, if you end your day at 1 a.m., you close your laptop and you go to sleep. If you're, and if you've been on your laptop all day, that's a different kind of labor than people who have been on sets for like 18 hour days who are doing backbreaking work and who need more than 10 hour turnarounds to recover. 10 hour turnarounds, that's, so what? You have eight, every medical expert in the world says you need eight hours of sleep a night, Every everyone. Um, this idea that 12 on 12 off is like a new demand that I obviously never had in the books and never should have asked for is bullshit because they should have, that should have been the minimum ask is a 12 out 12 hour turnaround that 10 hours is ridiculous. So you have, if you have a one hour commute total, like let's say you live 30 minutes away from your work because you got that lucky, but most people it's an hour commute each way. Yeah. yeah Los Angeles. It's, it's, it's an hour. So you have, zero hours you have eight hours of sleep one hour each way to work you have zero hours free time your entire life is working that's what they want for you you deserve more than that absolutely and so i think what we sort of illustrated here is like sort of like a broad view of like how the labor the hollywood labor movement sort of represents a lot of what's going on in the labor movement more broadly, but a lot of what's going on in politics. You have all of the mechanisms in place to make things better. Like all of the people in power can do the things, all of the workers want the things to happen. But the friction is the fact that there's so much concentrated benefit that can be had amongst the few like executives and higher ups. Um, and this can be applied to politics as well that the system stays the same. And so what you get is this like little game to where you have the unions who have this mechanism to fight for workers and oftentimes do and occasionally get very close. But when you get to these points of, all right, here's the deal, oftentimes you get this sort of play folding. Like, 
okay, this is the best we've got, essentially, and we should take this and be okay with it. Meanwhile, the rest of the workers are like, hey, we put a, a lot on the line here. Strikes often mean you're going without pay. Um, oftentimes, people will contribute to strike pay, like a big pool of money to get people to like have some pay. That's great. That may be like $3 an hour, if that, or like $5 a day. Like it's just, It doesn't make up regular pay at all. And so there's massive sacrifices that people are going through. Um, again, also equivalent to politics. But um, elective representatives in the political sense or like people in the union are like union representatives in the sense sometimes don't fight all the way for workers or like they leave them a little bit short. And so I think that is understanding that isn't to say, oh, there's so much working against you and it's impossible. I think it's sort of to say this is the lay of the land. This is how things usually work. And so to break that cycle, we have to be smarter about what to expect and like to include that with our not just our analysis but how we are informing other people when we are trying to encourage people um in certain workplaces to like form unions and start to begin that conversation of worker power and i will also say something that's been brought up a lot is like what will strikers lose if they strike you know what will workers lose if they strike what we haven't heard at all is what these big companies will lose if iotsi strikes and i think that's really important and i think People know those numbers. People at the top have done the cost analysis of this is what we will lose if we strike. We need to prevent a strike. Why aren't we hearing about that? Because I think that has an astronomically high value that people don't realize. I I don't know. Um, and like, I think ugh, I have a bunch of notes here that I haven't referenced at all. So sorry for looking at my phone. It's... Um, I, there's just so yeah. much, so many problems with this contract, in my opinion. Um, I mean, it, something that came up a lot during our meetings is um, someone was saying that their union leadership has had said to them, it's not a Christmas list. Like, you can't just ask for everything you want. But that's not the way that negotiations work. You're supposed to over ask. You're supposed to, you wouldn't go, if it was a one-on-one -on -one meeting with your boss and you wanted a 5% raise, you wouldn't ask for a 5% raise. You'd ask for a 10% raise and watch it get probably fought down to a 2% raise, but you would ask for more than you thought you could get. You, They shouldn't have asked for 10-hour turnarounds That's and for meal penalties to increase after the fourth meal penalty. I don't know anyone who's ever gotten to the fourth meal penalty. I know everyone who's gotten to the first and second. Could um, you explain that for our like, non-Hollywood audience? <laughs> Yeah, of course. So um, you're guaranteed meals, but if you don't get that time off to eat, it becomes a meal penalty and they just have to pay you more. Um, but the problem is like people are literally dying because they can't, you know, you need breaks to eat. You need food. Um, let me look at my, look at the, let me look at the numbers for what the meal penalty. I've been told working on sets before. I've been like, hey, you don't have any uh, lunches built in for this 18 hour day. Do you want to, is that an error? And people are like, oh no, we're just going to pay the meal penalties. That's not, it, they said the quiet part out loud. You're not supposed to have, you're supposed to feed people. You're supposed to give people this time. It shouldn't just be, oh, well, our, we, we can we can afford to just like pay the penalty of not feeding them. Let's just like shoot faster. 
if it costs less to pay the penalty than it does to have people break for an hour, it's not the penalty is not high enough. It is not doing its job. That's I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, that and I think this is important. It's important behind the scenes because there's a push to approve this vote and. You know, these things are never perfect, but a lot of times people say, you know, don't be the perfect, be the enemy of the good. These are like, th- th- this is just, I want to eat, dog. <laughs> like, it's that that's nothing perfect or good about that. It's just people want to eat. People need to eat to do their jobs if you want to be like really cynical about it, but just to survive. And so um, I'm glad that, you know, I really appreciate you. You, you were saying that like, Oh, I'm I'm this like really smart person. And sure, I get told that sometimes, but like I bring pe- I bring people on who know and are in places and have experiences that I don't have that people in my audience often don't have, so that we can all become smarter for it. And I really appreciate you like informing me and my audience about this whole process from the inside, especially because I mean it's almost been a little bit depressing to see like I I mean on the one hand, of course the American education system isn't really good about teaching about labor. So of course people don't have a good foundation for these things. But on the other hand, there are people who call themselves leftists who put hammer and sickle emojis in their profiles and they are speaking very um, authoritatively about strikes and labor power and what we have to do and all these different strategy things. But it's like, you haven't talked to a single worker offline. And so I, 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 in good faith, I want those people to understand the nuances of these conversations. They can take their energy, which I think is good, and they can direct it in a productive way. And I think, like, I've always say, like, being involved in politics locally is a better way that, to be involved in politics than, like, freaking out about national news. And, like, what you're doing is a great example, being on leadership of doing that, because you actually get to, like, talk with workers and in addition to living that experience but you get to bring that experience to the political space and share that with other workers and then um use that as a bonding experience to ultimately build slightly better working conditions on the margins and then hopefully that snowballs into just much better working conditions that can be felt across other industries and things like that at least that seems to be like the hope right yeah and like thank you dan i'm not someone who has any like formal education in labor relations i just am a huge nerd who has read a lot of theory because i like to read theory um and we something we try and do in hollywood labor is we try and like sneak political education into all of our events in some small ways um because we don't think that labor issues these are things that affect all of us it shouldn't be you shouldn't have to read pages and pages of theory in order to understand that you deserve to be paid more you deserve more free time to yourself um and you know people we have a lot of leftists who join who just don't know basic terms like capital and like we you know it's not something to make fun of people for it is it is a it is a result of a of an effective educational program that does not teach people about labor terms, does not teach people about the economy. I mean, I don't know. I like I could go on and on about this. How like I, in my high school education, at least, we had one semester of economics class one, and it did not. It wasn't practical. It was just about oh, this is, these are some economic terms. Didn't teach us about capital, didn't teach us about 
anything. I never learned about Taft Hartley in school. And it is something that I has come up every single day this past month um, in my conversations. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's an intentional effort to keep people in the dark about things that really affect them. I think you'd be smart to recognize that pattern in a lot of society that um, people are just, yeah, you just gloss over these things. Things are seen as not important because knowledge is a form of power. And if people knew about these things um, and like they'd be able to put a language to what is they're feeling already and what they are upset about. And then they can become that much closer to feeling empowered to solve something. So to solve like their conditions and that empowerment, I think, is what people are afraid of. Um, and I like that you're leading the charge of making people in power afraid. So thank you very much, Helen, for joining me. Thank you, Dan. This has been a pleasure. <laughs>